Coming up, we hear a recent Upper House talk from theologian A.J. Swoboda about the dreaded D-word in contemporary Christianity that's deconstructing your faith and how we might better think about that complex topic right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host and on staff here at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. And here in Madison, we're transitioning into a new season, into the summer. Students have recently taken their final exams. Many of them have graduated and uh, or moved back home for a few months. And the city itself has a different feel uh, through the summer and, uh, and a little different pace of work here at Upper House as well. In this season, we're excited to surface a couple of the stimulating talks that we've hosted over in the past years here at Upper House. Uh, this episode in particular will feature a talk from March of this year that was hosted in cooperation with the campus ministry crew. For Upper House, for us as a ministry that serves a university community, we know as well as anyone the profound changes in religious adherence and practice that are affecting college-age students. It's really on a scale that would have been hard to comprehend only a few decades ago. But students, especially those from Christian backgrounds, are looking very critically at their faith commitments, at their inherited traditions around religion, and in record numbers are disaffiliating from churches and other religious groups. Our guest on this episode, the theologian A.J. Swoboda, actually casts a positive light or a silver lining on this questioning of faith or what is often called in the media uh, and in, in conversation, deconstructing one's faith. Soboda argues that doubt and questioning, which are at the core of what, it, of what deconstructing is, present us with an opportunity to also reconstruct our ideas and beliefs on much more solid biblical foundations and to deepen an understanding of who we are and what we believe about God. Soboda also argues that the church has a positive role to play in this process, even as, as it's often portrayed as the sort of object of deconstruction. Uh, Soboda has a much more optimistic vision for the church. And he also talks about the role of the questioner, him or herself, who, if equipped with the proper tools and a healthy dose of honesty, can come through a time of deconstruction with a much stronger and vibrant faith. So we're excited to share this talk with you. It was very popular to those uh, people in attendance back in March. Uh, first, a little more about A.J. Swoboda. He's an assistant professor of Bible theology and Christianity at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. And he also leads a doctor of ministry program at Fuller Theological Seminary. Swoboda is the author of several books, including the one that this talk is based on called After Doubt. And uh, there will be a link to that book in the show notes if you're interested in reading uh, the whole range of thoughts that Swoboda has on this issue of doubt and deconstruction. 
So before jumping into the talk itself, just a friendly reminder to rate the podcast uh, in your favorite podcast app, as well as leave us a message at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. Tell us what you like about the podcast or what you hope to see on the podcast in the future. With that, here's a talk from the Upper House Vault titled After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It with A.J. Swoboda. The Way of Thomas, Doubt, Deconstruction, and Discipleship. Doubt, Deconstruction, and Discipleship. Um, my friend um, Jerry Root, who teaches at Wheaton uh, University, uh, once told me, um, he once asked me a question over breakfast. He said, you know, when you think about it, A.J., um, you're a theologian, you, you spend your life studying the Bible, theology. What is the very first thing that we will say when we enter the presence of God? It was an interesting question. I never thought about it before. You know, I'd never, I'd never wondered, you know, what, 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 what will the first words be uh, that come out of our mouth uh, when we uh, see Jesus face to face? And uh, Jerry Root has this theory. Uh, Root, by the way, is uh, one of the world's leading scholars on C.S. Lewis. He's uh, friends with like members of the Lewis family and written books on him and um, absolutely brilliant mind and a, a total gift to, um, uh, to, the, to, to all of us. I mean, go read all of his stuff. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, but he said, he said, you know, the very first moment uh, we enter heaven and we see heaven and God and we see Jesus face to face, Ruth says the very first thing that will come out of our mouth is we will look around and the first words we will say is we will say, Oh, and, and is, it, what, he, what, he's, what he's getting at here is at that moment, right, when we see God face to face, we will see everything as it is. And all the questions, all the questions that we have will all be at that very moment, will all be utterly clarified. We will see God as he is. And we will be seen. And all of those percolating questions, those things that keep us up at night, they'll be clarified and we'll understand. But of course, until we get there, um, many of us know this to be true, that we've all got a lot of questions and a lot of doubts and a lot of things that we wrestle with. Um, but that moment I, will be absolutely incredible. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named Carl Barth, um, he's very well known for having written probably the most dense theology in the history of the church. He wrote a, uh, something like a 20 million uh, page, not page, it felt like 20 million page, 20 million word volume called Church Dogmatics. Um, I've attempted to read the thing. It makes almost no sense, um, but it's 20 million words. And at the end of his life, Karl Barth was talking about how after having spent his life studying Jesus, there will be a moment when he enters heaven and he will see God in his glory. Uh, and Bart has this famous line where he says, in heaven, we shall know all that is necessary, and we shall not have to write it down on paper or read more. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my church dogmatics over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. And what Bart is saying here is he's saying at the moment, right, we see God, at the moment we see him face to face, all of our theology, all of our thoughts will be like waste paper on heaven's floor. Because those theologies, those ideas will be nothing in the presence of God. We won't, know we won't need theology more because we'll see God face to face. 
one of my favorite authors is a woman named Madeline Lingle. She wrote a book called The Irrational Season, and she sums up what the Christian life is all about. She's talking about marriage, and she says, you know, when you marry somebody, you really don't know who you're marrying until a few weeks or months after you've been married. You look at the person like, what in the world did I do? Uh, and it takes a lifetime, right? Uh, in the words of Madeline Lingle, it takes a lifetime to learn somebody. It takes a lifetime to learn someone. None of us know somebody immediately. It takes a life to get to know somebody. And in a way, all these, these sort of introductory images, I'm sort of leading you in a direction here. And that is that before heaven, before we see Jesus face to face, we are all fumbling along, trying to experience and know and learn about God. But until then, it's a journey. It's a long journey. I met Jesus when I was 16 years old in my math class. Uh, I, did, I wasn't raised in the church. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian environment. And when I was 16 years old, I was in my math class in high school. And I overheard the two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading this book called the Left Behind series. And I'd never heard about Jesus, really. I had never thought about Jesus. And I went home and I read the Gospels. And I read the story of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector. And I had a visceral, um, life-changing experience with the living Christ, with Jesus, that has utterly turned my life upside down. And I can say, since I was 16 years old, I'm 41. In fact, guys, I got news for you. This is how important this talk is. It's actually my birthday today. I'm 41 years old. That's how important being with you is. That's from 16 to 41. From 16 to 41. I have made mistake after mistake. I've learned about God and realized, oh my gosh, I was wrong, been off. It has taken a lifetime to learn about Jesus. And I'm only halfway there. And so we, I want to start by introducing you to a concept, okay? And, and again, we're going to talk about doubt and deconstruction before we look at the text. I want to introduce, introduce you to a concept that I've been working on for quite some time now that is kind of the, the cornerstone of a lot of the work that I'm doing, which is as an undergraduate professor, the majority of my work, the majority of my work as a professor is working with students who come to university and have a ton of questions about God, the Bible, and faith. And they basically have had nobody to talk to about those questions. Um, they've maybe watched some podcasts or read some videos or read some articles or watched some videos, YouTube clips. But by and large, my life has been devoted to helping students think through um, the questions that we have. So I want to introduce you to something called the theological journey. And here's the idea. The idea of the theological journey is this, is that just like Madeline Lingle said, just like Karl Barth said, just like uh, Jerry Root said at the very beginning, until we see God face to face, the Christian journey is exactly that. It's a journey. It's a, and I, and I, you know, for all of us, the journey of learning about Jesus and growing in our understanding of God, it, it's, it's a theological journey, right? It's a, it's an ongoing process, like being married, right? For, for 19 years, it, it's taken day after day after day of learning and, and growing and seeking to understand my wife, that I can be a good servant and, and husband to be able to be, you know, in, in this marriage. Well, likewise, in loving God, it takes a lifetime of getting to know Jesus. I often, I'm not in the room, so I can't, I can't uh, hear your response, but my gut would tell me that if you could answer this question, you would say, you, you would have a very specific response. If I said to you, how many of you believe exactly today in Jesus the exact same way you did 10 years ago, then raise your hand. And my gut tells me very few of you would raise your hand. 
Because for all of us, there have been moments where we've realized like, oh my gosh, there have been things I've been thinking about God that are totally not Jesus. That I've been thinking things about God that are totally not Bible. That you, you've had ideas and you go like, my goodness gracious. I mean, I, when I first married Quinn, I thought, I don't know why, but I thought my, her favorite dessert was banana cream pie. And so when my mom calls me and says, what should we have for your wife's birthday, her first birthday party with the family? What should we have? And I said, we should just have banana cream pie. Of course, her, she, Quinn, my wife hates banana cream pie. Uh, she loves German chocolate cake, but I didn't know that. I was projecting onto my wife my favorite uh, uh, a birthday, birthday cake or, or dessert. Because it, take, right? it takes a lifetime to get to know somebody. I didn't know that she loved German chocolate cake. I know now you don't make that mistake ever again, right? But it takes a lifetime to get to know somebody. And it takes a lifetime to get to know about God. The theological journey is this. It is a lifelong process by which the follower of Jesus matures or even devolves, goes backwards in their knowledge about the living God. It's the journey of learning about God. And it it is a lifetime journey that will not be totally fixed until we reach heaven. And that is exactly, by the way, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. When he says, we see through glass dimly. We don't see perfectly. I want to tell you a story about a guy um, who went through this journey. And he went through a pretty tough journey. For 10 years, uh, I lived in uh, the urban core of Portland, Oregon, where my wife and I and a team of people started a church called Theophilus. Uh, It was an incredible 10 years of life and loved the season that we got to be in Portland. Portland's a really funky city. If you've you've never been to Portland, there's really nothing quite like it. I hear there are some similarities between Madison and places like Portland and Berkeley and Austin. There's some similar cities, but Portland takes the cake. It is, it is a very weird city. When we planted this church, we decided, of course, to plant the church in this part of the city of Portland that was the weirdest part of the city of Portland, 97408, which is the uh, kind of the most progressive secular part of the city. So we started this church, and about five years into the church plant, uh, I get an email. And the email is from a young man named Phil. And Phil tells me a story. Phil had been raised in a conservative Christian, evangelical Christian home in middle America, and had just gotten a tech job, and he was moving to Portland and wanted to be a part of the church. He had heard about our church, and a friend of his uh, connected him somehow way she performed our church. And so he emails and says, hey, I just moved to Portland. I'd love to go to coffee. Let's meet. I'm a pastor at the time, and I said, I'd love to. So we meet for coffee in my office. And he tells me a story. He is so excited to be in Portland. He's so excited about the donuts, the culture, the people. Uh, uh, he's just jazzed to be there. And he wants to plug into the church. He wants to be part of the church. He wants to serve. He wants to be on the worship team. Uh, all this. I mean, he's so jazzed. He wants to be on mission. He wants to be in a small group. He is all in. And so I'm super jazzed and finding ways that we can connect with him. And uh, we talk about how he can serve on the sound team and he could be a part of the team. And I remember just saying on that day, we we're meeting for coffee. And I said, well, I'll see you on Sunday. He's so jazzed. He's coming to church. And Sunday comes, we say goodbye. Sunday comes and he comes to church. And I just began to notice after Sunday that Phil just sort of started to disappear a little bit. And he wasn't kind of coming back. Um, I really didn't know what if something had happened, but he just sort of he just sort of went off into the night. And I'm a pastor, I'm busy, and if I'm candid with you, I just forgot about Phil, not because I wanted to. I'm just absent-minded. <laughs> 
And I'm probably a better professor than I am a pastor. Um, and so I say goodbye to Phil and um, I just notice he doesn't come anymore. And a whole year goes by and Phil essentially disappears. And I remember about one year later, I get this um, email uh, and it's Phil. It's almost a year later. And he says, hey, pastor, I'd love to meet with you again. And I said, I'd love, oh my goodness, I'd love to, it's been a year, let's talk, I'd love to. So we set up an appointment and he's in my office, same exact place. And we're sitting and having coffee and I said, I haven't seen you for a year. What, how, how have you been? It's always awkward as a Christian when you ask people, where have you been? Why haven't you been to church? It's a great way to shame people into feeling great about themselves. And I said, so where have you been, man? And he tells me the most gnarly story. Um, Phil tells his story of, he moved to Portland. He was all jazzed. He wanted to be a part of the church and um, gets a part of, he's a part of a tech, tech firm. He's, he's super jazzed to be there, meeting friends. And, but he, he, he started to feel really lonely. And he talks about how coming to church was really hard for him. And it was really hard because whenever he came to church, he felt waves of sadness. He missed home. He was lonely. And that eventually led to the point where he didn't want to come just because he just felt so disconnected. It was the first time in his life he'd been in a church where he didn't uh, know anybody by name. Uh, when he was growing up in his church, of course, he knew everybody. And Phil um, just starts to talk to me about, you know, Charles, his roommate, and how uh, in the tech firm, he developed this relationship with a guy named Charles, who was um, this fascinating guy, this brilliant uh, a tech dude who um, was raised Mormon, but had uh, left his faith. And when he was in college, he went to university, and he'd had a philosophy professor who basically um, walked him out of his faith. Uh, he'd been a Mormon, and he'd walked out and became an atheist. And Charles and Phil, just every night, they started to talk about faith and the Bible. And every night they would talk and Charles had these incredible questions about the Bible that Phil had absolutely no response for. I mean, they would sit up, talk about how could there be a God if, da, 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 all these questions that Phil just basically had no answer for. And so this sent Phil into a whole new cycle because he didn't have anybody to talk to about his questions. And, and so basically he says, his, he's sitting there, he's telling me, he goes, my life basically became one big pod, podcast binge. And I spent my life watching YouTube videos. And there apparently are all these people that know all this stuff about the Bible and Christianity that I didn't know anything about. And he's sitting there. He goes, I, I had no idea about these things. I didn't know how messy the making of the Bible was. I didn't know like how the Bible came to be. I didn't, I've never thought about philosophy in the Bible. I've never thought about philosophy and faith. And, he's, and I remember he said to me, he goes, Charles, here's the thing about Charles. He's the nicest man he's ever met. And he goes, I didn't know what to do with the fact that the nicest person I ever met didn't believe that God existed. He's an atheist. And, and then he starts telling me about just the election happens. Uh, Donald Trump is elected president, and, and his parents are like on Facebook, super jazzed that President Trump is now the president, but he lives in Portland, and being in Portland is not a place where people are super pro Donald Trump. And so he was like, his environment was one thing, but his home was nothing, and he didn't even know how to talk to his parents anymore. Like it just shut things down. And then he says, and then I started smoking weed. And he goes, and that was incredible. He goes, I loved it. It calmed me. It relaxed me. And, he, and he's sort of telling me this story. <laughs> and he's got all these things. And all of a sudden, just at, at one moment in the conversation, his tone changes. And he's not laughing anymore, sort of 
he, he stops and he goes, and I just, I saw, I could see one tear kind of coming down, kind of cascading down his face. And he said, he says, I have all these questions. I got these questions about the Bible. I got questions about faith, about sexuality, about gender. I've got questions about politics. I'm mad that Christianity appears to have been co-opted by a political party. I, I got all these questions. And then he goes, he goes, a tear coming down his face. He goes, I've got all these questions. Can I still be a Christian? And at that moment, when those words come out of his mouth, it dawned on me. I mean, I realized I'm not talking to a person. I'm talking to a generation. I'm, I'm talking to a generation of people who have all of these huge questions and, and wonder, can I still follow Jesus with all this stuff? And I remember just sitting with Phil and for the next hour, just like processing. I mean, the long story is I spent the last uh, five years after that walking with Phil and just being his friend as he went through the full on deconstruction process. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, one of the hard things about walking with people in deconstruction is how many coffee appointments they need. I, number one, I think I developed some sort of major illness, the amount of coffee I had with this guy. But secondarily, I just couldn't keep up. He wanted to talk all the time. Five years, I just gave myself to him. And the end result is this guy, it's not a happy, clappy, perfect ending. But Phil graduated uh, from the university, from Portland State University with a philosophy degree. He is walking with Jesus right now. He loves God with all of his heart. And he wants to be a philosopher for Jesus. And it's an absolutely beautiful story. But I got to tell you, it was really hard. And Phil walked through what we generally call the deconstruction process. And it is this season of asking really big questions about your faith. And that is what I want to talk about for a few minutes. Is I want to ask, is it possible? Is it possible to question your faith and not lose it? And what I want to suggest tonight is that for many of us, we may, be, we may be in the middle of it. We may go through it. But what I want to suggest to you tonight is this. If Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save us from our sin, then he is also powerful enough to save us in our doubts. It turns out in the Bible um, that we have a story about somebody that walks through something like this. It's not the exact same. It's not perfect A for A, apple to apple uh, delineation. And for any kind of theologian, Bible people in the room, you can poke, poke some holes in making a connection between Phil and what I'm going to tell you. But I actually want to suggest to you that there is a biblical story about a man named Thomas that is eerily similar in scope to the story of Phil. It's not the exact same, but it's very similar. And it's, it's a story of a man named Thomas. Now, I want to be careful. Some of you, you hear the name Thomas, and you immediately call him Doubting Thomas. And I understand many of us have been raised in church environments where he's been called Doubting Thomas. The only problem with that is the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is he called Doubting Thomas. Um, that's a name that he has not earned. Does he doubt? Yes but he is not called Doubting Thomas. His name is Thomas. And what we know about Thomas is that Thomas has followed Jesus for three years. And immediately after Jesus's death on a Friday and resurrection on a Sunday, 
Thomas goes through what we might call an existential crisis. I almost want to call it deconstruction, but it's certainly doubt. And this is how the story goes. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, meaning the 12 disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And I want to pause for just a moment and make a comment about that very first line that you see there. Thomas was not in the room when Jesus resurrected. Now, that's, an, that's a very interesting comment that John makes. This is masterful storytelling, by the way. John, the way John is narrating the story, it's absolutely brilliant the way he, he tells the story. He catches every little nuance and just rings it of every single detail that he can in order to make a point. But, but he, he starts the whole story by saying Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus shows up. For, for me, again, I've spent 25 years serving college students as a, as a college pastor for 10 years at the University of Oregon, 10 years as a church planter, now as an academic. I spent a lot of time with college students. And I often tell you know, college students, um, you know, Billy Graham, right, the famous evangelist, and Osama bin Laden, the mastermind between 9-11, Bill, Billy Graham and, and, and Osama bin Laden, they have one thing in common. One thing in common. You know what it is? They both claim to have had their first major religious experience when they were freshmen in college. And as you can tell from both their stories, who you are becoming in college is a very big part of your story. You often, that what happens in college is very instrumental in the rest of your life. And I've spent a lot of time with college students. And I've just noticed that for a lot of college students who walk through doubt or they go through the deconstruction experience, and I think this is universal, it's not just college students, but is that for many people who are going to walk through doubt and deconstruction, who are going to question their faith or begin to dismantle their faith. And to deconstruct Christianity or deconstruct faith means to question it, right? To sort of tear it apart and get it down to the basis. Is that both of those experiences often have the same uh, experience, root experience. And the root experience is at some point along the way, feeling like you have missed out on something. And it could be a ton of things. For example, it could be you graduate from college and you didn't get married yet. And you feel like, oh my gosh, everybody else is getting married. Uh, it could be the experience of you get cancer, but nobody else does. It could be the experience of everybody else seems to be able to have babies, but you can't have babies. If whatever experience it is, it may be that other people seem to have, they get all the internships, they get all the money, they get all the, the opportunities, but you're not getting nothing. And I see that in Thomas's story, that's one of the core experiences that Thomas has. He wasn't there. You and I, we have a word for this, right? We call it FOMO, fear of missing out. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus showed up. And I'm totally convinced. I'm completely convinced that that experience of not having been in the room has caused him to sort of pull back. He goes, well, I didn't get to experience that. And so he wasn't there, FOMO. He missed out. So the other disciples, we'll keep going. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And you've got to love the explanation, excla exclamation point. I mean, they're jazzed. Imagine the jealousy that Thomas is feeling. But Thomas said to them, unless I see nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. And when you, when you read the commentaries on what's taking place in that one little verse there, what, what Thomas seems to be saying is he's now reframing his faith in such a way where he's saying, I'll believe as long as da, 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 da. 
Right? He uses the word, unless I see the nail marks. He's putting, what's he doing? Translate that to our moment. He's putting contractual boundaries around what he's willing to believe in order to follow Jesus. You know, we, um, in marriage, right? Um, you know, when you get married uh, to somebody, um, you, you basically say to the person, you say, I do, which is your way of saying yes to all of you, right? Not, not just the parts that you like. And when you marry somebody, right? True marriage is loving somebody for who they are. It's not loving for somebody for what they give you. And when you marry somebody, you're all in. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I'm, I'm all in. But what we often do with Jesus is we say, we don't say to Jesus, I'm all in no matter what. We do what Thomas does right here. We say, I'll be in as long as, da, 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 da. I'll be in as long as, unless I can touch your hands. If I can touch your hands, then I'll follow and believe. And what Thomas is doing here is he's putting contractual boundaries to what discipleship would look like. He was saying, I, I will follow you so long as I can touch your hands. I can touch your side. And we do that all the time. I will follow you, Jesus, as long as I get married by the time I'm 22. I will follow you, Jesus, as long as you get rid of my, my sexual desire that I've wrestled with since I was a teenager. God, I will love you and I will follow you as long as, and we put boundaries around Jesus. And friends, when we do that, that's not a marriage. That's not a marriage. What we're doing when we do that is it's, it's a prenuptial agreement. It's saying, I will love you as long as dot, 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 dot. Marriage is loving somebody for who they are. Thomas, at this moment, is saying, I'll love you if. I hear call it, my, my students are awesome. At the end of every semester, we always, I have two weeks where the students get to ask any question that they want no holds barred, anything. And it's very common that I'll hear students say something like this. I could never believe in a God who, and then they'll fill it in with something they don't like. I could never believe in a God who thinks that way about salvation. I could never believe in a God who created hell. I could never believe in a God who thinks that way about sexuality or gender or something like that. I could never believe in a God who, and essentially what's happening is we're saying, God will love you as long as you are like us. <laughs> That's essentially what we're saying is we're saying, God, we will love you as long as you're sensible to us and reasonable, and you are what we want you to be. But that's not loving God. Loving God is loving God for who God is, not for who we want God to be. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, that famous theologian, says that's the perennial problem in the Christian faith, is that God maybe made us in his image. Maybe he did make us in his image, and he did. But the problem is, God made us in his image. We're really good at returning the favor. We love God so long as God looks like us. What Thomas is doing here is he's putting parameters. He's saying, I will believe if. And, and, and for Thomas, it's get, it's, it becomes a problem. So look at, the way, look at the way Jesus responds. Just vintage Jesus here. Just vintage Jesus. Look at the way Jesus responds. A week later, his disciples were in a house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked. By the way, notice, where is Thomas now? Thomas is now among the disciples. And I can tell you exactly why. He missed the first time. He's not going to miss the second time. Jesus is resurrected. He's not going to miss again. Though the doors were locked, which is, a, by the way, again, sorry, all these comments. The, one of the greatest features of the resurrection body is that you can walk through walls. It's, it's one of the, the absolute coolest features of the resurrection body. And we will get to walk through walls. If you're not excited about uh, the new heaven and the new earth, you have, you have not reflected enough on the walking through wall reality that will be yours in Christ. 
Though the doors were locked, (laughs) Jesus came and stood among them, and he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to point out three things that happened to Thomas here. I want you to see three movements in Thomas's story. The first movement is this. You got to see that Thomas followed Jesus first. And we know that Thomas was one of the 12 disciples, which meant that Jesus would have called him three years earlier to follow him for three years. And those three years would have been incredible. Imagine the things that Thomas had experienced. Thomas had seen miracles. He'd seen um, the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. He'd seen the 5,000 get fed uh, with the fishes and the loaves. He'd seen demons get cast out. He saw people get healed. He sa- Thomas had seen all this incredible stuff, miracle after miracle. He saw it all. And yet look at this. Even though Thomas had experienced all those miracles, he still doubted. And here's why, for me, on a spiritual formation, please hear me, why this is so important. Because I get, all the time, somebody will say, if God would just show me himself, then I would believe. If God would just do the miracle, then I believe. And I want to say, tell Thomas that. Who saw Jesus for three years, he saw Jesus do it all, and yet he still doubts. And the lesson here, the lesson here, is you can have had miraculous powerful encounters with the living God and seen them with your own eyes. You can have been at the Christian camp and seen God do an absolute miracle. You could have seen, you could have gone on mission trips that were life-blowing, life-changing, mind-blowing. You can have had experiences where God spoke to you and still walk through doubt. Miracles and experiences are not a vaccine for doubt. And and I I think that's absolutely critical to this story because friends, if you think that if you have questions about your faith, all of a sudden you're not a Christian anymore, somehow in shape or form, those doubts mean that somehow you don't believe. Tell that to Thomas. He'd walked for three years. Now, Now, here's what's interesting. Think about this. Thomas, okay, not Thomas, Judas Iscariot and Peter. Judas Iscariot and Peter. What do they both have in common? They both have one one single thing in common, other than being disciples together. They have one thing in common. Both of them turned their back on Jesus. Both of them walked away. The only difference is Peter was willing to be forgiven. He was willing to be restored. The Bible separates unbelief from a struggle of doubt. Heart, I, I want to go out on a limb here and say, If you're going to follow Jesus for a long time, there are going to be moments like Thomas when you may have all the theology right in your brain and you've experienced the miraculous and you've got the gifts of the spirit and you've been to mission trips and you've seen God move and you are just every time you listen to that Bethel worship album, you feel the presence of God. Yes, those can be real and you can still experience real doubt. And so Thomas doubts. He had followed and then he doubts. He had followed, and then he doubts. 
Now, when I when I think about um, when I think about the journey, the theological journey, right? Learning about God, spending a life learning about God. I think a lot of us go through a similar pattern as Thomas does in the story. Um, I, I like to talk about it this way: um, kind of three big stages in the Christian theological journey, and that is three kind of I don't know parts of the journey of following Jesus. I call them construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Let me just briefly explain what those mean. Construction are those early years when you learned about Jesus. Those were the first years that you became a follower of Jesus. That was your family of origin. This was the church that raised you. These are the people that handed you the faith. And and that is a sacred, sacred thing to be handed the faith. I remember when I first met Jesus and started going uh, to a, a Baptist church in my hometown. When I first met Jesus, I started going to this conservative Baptist church. And I'm so grateful I went to this church because they force fed the Bible to me. They required me to share my faith. They taught me how to repent. Um, they taught me about the Trinity. They gave me my first Bible. I'm so grateful to God for that community. And, and they were the ones that handed me my first iteration of faith. And I am so, thank God for those people. The only problem was those same people that handed me all those beautiful first steps in the faith, they also handed me some stuff that wasn't that good. And I can tell you right now, yeah, they taught me about the Trinity. They taught me how to read my Bible. Uh, They taught me to memorize the Bible. They taught me how to repent. But they also handed me a very, 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 very low view of women that essentially said that women were footnotes in the story of of, of God. And I got to say, I'm so grateful for the people that handed me the faith. But I, at some point, had to wake up to the fact that I had been handed some ideas about Jesus that were not biblical at all. And so for some of us, for many of us, that's going to lead to what we call deconstruction. And deconstruction is a period of time where either we intentionally or unintentionally begin to undo some of the things that we've believed. Now, let me use an illustration here. Uh, In one of Eugene Peterson, God rest his soul, one one of Eugene Peterson's books, he talks about how when you go to the hospital, you go to the hospital to get well, right? You go to the hospital to get healthy. Well, what happens when you go to the hospital? We all know this this year because it's the last couple of years because of COVID. What happens when you go to the hospital? Well, you go to help get healthy, but sometimes when you go to the hospital, guess what happens? You get sick at the hospital. And it turns out there's a whole uh, set of diseases that you get just in the hospital. You know what they're called? Iatrogenic diseases. They are diseases you get when you are trying to get healthy in the hospital. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, no matter how awesome your church is, no matter how awesome your family of origin is, no matter how awesome uh, Upper House is, no matter how awesome Crew is where you're at, no matter how awesome the churches in Madison are, no matter how awesome these things are, I can all but guarantee you that the same people that handed you a beautiful faith also gave you some stuff that wasn't Jesus-y. And isn't, I think part of following Jesus is actually recognizing the things that we believed that have nothing to do with Jesus. There's a whole debate right now about this word deconstruction. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? And I got to tell you, it's exhausting having these conversations with people on Twitter because that is it's just a firestorm of asininity and stupidity in almost all its forms. It, it is so challenging to have these conversations. But on one uh 
on one hand, you've got people that say deconstruction is always bad. It's always bad and it's a slippery slope and it leads to, hor- leads to horrible things. And you got this other side that says you've got to deconstruct. You got to pull the Christian faith apart because it's oppressive and wrong, and stuck in the second century. You got these two like wild, insanely wild signs. And both of them missed the point. Because sometimes, friends, to, uh, here's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes when we undo bad ideas about God, it actually opens us up to experience God in a deeper way. We have a word for that. It's called repentance. Literally, in Greek, metanoia. Metanoia, to change your mind. The word metanoia means to change your mind. There is no religion in the world that is as affirming of the idea of sanctifying your ideas and intellect than Christianity. There have been so many moments in my, I could tell you a hundred right now, moments where I realized something I thought was antithetical to the way of Jesus. And so if somebody says, is deconstruction good or bad? Well, my answer is it's complicated. It's complicated. And here's why it's complicated. Because when I'm sitting in my office, I'm in my office right now, and I got my, I got a couch over here where I have office hours. When I got students who come into my office who were raised in church environments in which they were given an oppressive, non-biblical vision of Jesus, and they're sitting there saying, I want to love God, but I've got some ideas in my head that are wrong. And when they're saying that, that is good deconstruction. Because to undo false ideas, we have a word for that. It's repentance. And I got to tell you, a lot of my students are not deconstructing the gospel or Jesus. They are deconstructing bad theology. And when you deconstruct bad theology, you are just making the way, making the way for the Holy Spirit to renew your heart and your soul. Go read 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about chapter 7 and 8. He says, we do spiritual warfare by dealing with the stronghold of what is up here. And it's a wild thing to think about that spiritual warfare has something to do with the brain. It has a ton to do with the brain because the ideas that we have in our brain really do affect us. Is deconstruction good or bad? Well, I would say sometimes it's really, really good. If the ideas that we believe are not Jesus and not Bible, they need to be deconstructed. I mean, for heaven's sake, Jesus deconstructed when Jesus is with the religious leaders. And he's like, you have heard it said, da, 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 da. but I say to you, da, 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 da. I'm doing my, my best rabbi impersonation here. That, my friend is deconstruction. He is deconstructing bad religious ideas and proclaiming that he is the truth. Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, deconstructed elements of the faith tradition he'd been raised in in order to present the gospel in a new and fresh way. Deconstruction can be so healthy, but unfortunately, it can also be really damaging and very distorting. Because truthfully, for a lot of my students, if I'm candid with you, some of my students do come into my office and they're going through deconstruction because they've got bad ideas in their brain about Jesus that need to be undone. But a lot, a lot of my students are deconstructing not because they want to follow God, but they're deconstructing the faith they were handed. Because really, at the end of the day, and if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. I don't live in Madison, so you can't get mad at me. I'm not going to be face to face with you. Uh, I live in Oregon, so you're going to have to fly all the way out here to tell me I'm wrong. But a lot of my students are not deconstructing because they want to love God. A lot of my students are deconstructing because really at the end of the day, they want to sleep with who they want to sleep with. And they don't want to have a God that tells them how to live their life. And I got to tell you, I walk with both those students, but that is a very dark 
journey to say, I'm tired of having a God that tells me how to live. That is, by the way, the exact same thing that the man and the woman fell for in Garden of Eden. God, we want. We want what the serpent says and what we say over you. And both are very dangerous. That, that's a very dangerous approach. The, the truth is, deconstruction, though, is not the end. There's a third part of this journey that we call reconstruction. And I love that you guys are going to be talking about this. You're having a group to talk about this. Reconstruction is when you come back to the faith. It's the prodigal returning home. And for so many people that are going through deconstruction, they assume that's the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. In fact, sometimes the reconstruction journey is the most life-giving journey because it's the story of having wandered off to a distant land and realizing life sucks without God. It really does. I spent the first 16 years of my life every night putting my head on my pillow, wondering if there was a God who loved me and cared for me when my father had left and my mom was a single mom trying to parent me. And I'm telling you right now, I have lived my life without God and I have lived life with God and life is so much better with God. In that moment of coming back, I was just meeting this last week with a woman uh, who is going through the reconstruction journey and she's coming back to her faith with such joy and open-handedness. She's returning to her first love. She's Peter coming back to Jesus. She's Thomas worshiping. You know, there's a line in C.S. Lewis um, where he's talking about his wife who passed away, uh, Joy, who died of cancer. In his book, A Grief Observed, he's talking about how he, he had fallen in love with this picture he had of his wife. He had a little picture of his wife. And he said, I've fallen in love with the picture of my wife. And he, he has this moment where he says, here's the problem. I've actually loved, I love the picture of my wife more than I love my wife. And he says, that is exactly what we do to God. There's a line uh, where he, he, he says this, he says, he says, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want joy, not something that's like her, his wife. A really good photograph might become in the end, a snare, a horror, an obstacle. Images of the holy become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas in the Messiah ruins. And what Lewis is saying here, I mean, we're talking about deconstruction, good or bad. What Lewis is saying here is actually one of the marks of truly following Jesus is from time to time, Jesus comes along and he shatters everything that you think in order to get your heart. That it's a mark of his presence. Sometimes we need to go through deconstruction because the image that we've had of Jesus isn't about Jesus. The third thing that happens to Thomas is he returns to Jesus. Actually, to me, more theologically accurate, Jesus returns to Thomas. And you gotta, you gotta look at how he does it. Look at these, look at the, look at these details. I mean, this is just astounding to me. First thing, a week later, his disciples run the house. I got it. You got to just love Jesus for his timing because he doesn't rush off to fix Thomas's doubt. There's a line in Dallas Willard where he says, sometimes when you look at the Lazarus story, right? When Jesus finds out Lazarus has died, he waits a whole year. He waits a whole week before he goes and shows up to Lazarus's home where his, his friend has died. And there's a part in Dallas Willard where he says, you know, from time to time, Jesus lets us stew. You know, I love that word stew. He lets us stew in our struggles. And, and he says this because sometimes in stewing over our struggles, our doubts, our problems, our issues, our questions, 
Sometimes in stewing, it makes us deeper people. You know, it, kill, it kills me right now. This is, this is just, just in general, just to, this, this kill me. Is, you know, even 20 years ago when I was a kid, if, if I was in college and I had like some theological question, right? I had some big question about God. Right? If I had some question about sexuality or something like that, when I was in college, you know what you'd have to do is crazy. This, again, this is a different world. You know what you have to do? It's crazy. If you had a question about God, you'd have to like, you'd have to like pray. <laughs> you'd have to like read your Bible. You'd have to like talk to people in your church, right? You'd have to like go to your John MacArthur study Bible. You'd have to like do some research. We didn't have Bible project videos to like fix everything for us. You, you just, you just had to struggle with it. And now I'm going to tell you right now, you know, you know who pastors more people in America right now than anybody else? The most, the, the biggest name pastor that nobody knows about who pastors more people than anybody in America right now. You know who it is? It's Siri. We live in a moment where when people have questions and doubts, we can find immediate answers. We can go to the podcast. We can watch the video. We can, and here's the problem with that is finding immediate answers doesn't require us to struggle at all. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you never had to struggle through a question, then you're not ready for an answer because it creates character to receive an answer. The struggle is important and Jesus knows it. He waits a week, a whole week. And then when he does come, look at this. He lets Thomas touch him. I am, I'm struck. What does Jesus not do to fix Thomas's doubt? He doesn't give him a YouTube clip. He doesn't give him a Gospel Coalition article. He doesn't give him the, the latest N.T. Wright book. He gives him himself, his body. He touches him. He lets Thomas touch him. Now, I've, I've walked with probably 100 people who've walked through deconstruction. Some of you are like, wow, maybe you're the problem. I'm not the problem. I just work with a lot of college students, okay? So back off. I've worked with a lot of college students. And I will say across the board that when someone is walking through deconstruction, they are not looking for an answer. They are looking for a friend. They're looking for somebody to be in the hole with them. Jesus models it. He lets him touch him. He doesn't have the 10-pointed thing on the 10 reasons why you should believe in the resurrection because of apologetics. And we've, got the, we've read the Wayne Grudem, Norm Geisler uh, book on the topic, and we got the 10 reasons. He doesn't have an argument. He doesn't have an argument for the resurrection. He is the resurrection. And he lets Thomas touch him. You want to be a friend to somebody who's going through deconstruction? Let him hang out with you a lot and let him ask questions without you being offended that they have questions. Practice what my counselor calls containment. When somebody brings up an issue, don't take it personally that they're struggling. Let them struggle and be with you. Earn the right to be heard. When my son, who's 10 years old, asks a question, we just gave him the birds and the bee talk a couple of weeks ago. It's a whole new world for my 10-year-old son. And when he talks about questions about sex and all this, when he brings it up with me, when he brings it up, my first response is never the answer. My first response is always, Elliot, that is a great question. Because I want him to know 
I relationally can handle his struggle, his question, his doubt. I'm the safest person. If he can't bring his question to me as his dad, then he'll take it somewhere. And I'm going to say, I would rather him bring it to the church and to his dad than to YouTube or TikTok. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I love his response is he worships. He calls him God. And you just got to love the Jesus. He doesn't stop him. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 my Lord and my God. You're taking it a little far. I'm just a good teacher. No, he lets him worship. Why? Because Jesus isn't a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. And then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, in... um, uh, in, in a movie, I think it's called Breaking the Second Wall or Breaking the Third Wall. I never remember the right one, but it's the moment when an actor looks at the camera when you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. What is Jesus going? He's breaking the third wall. Jesus is turning towards the camera and he's looking at you at the end of this. And he's going, blessed are those who have seen. Thomas has seen. But blessed are you who haven't seen and yet believe. In the end of the story, it's not written into John because it wouldn't have happened yet. But guess what happens after this story? You know what Thomas does? Thomas, of all things, Thomas goes to India. If you have ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, I personally have three friends who are Indian Christians with the last name Thomas. Do you know why there are millions of Indian Thomas Christians? Because Thomas went to India as a missionary and he started the first church in India. And there is a witnessing Christian community 2,000 years who is still witnessing today in India because of Thomas's faithfulness. And the point of this story is we have got to stop seeing people who are struggling with doubt as problems. They are our future missionaries. And if you for one minute think your struggle with doubt is the end of your story, read this story over and over and over again. Because the one who doubts the most is the one who is sent to do the greatest work. You may be wrestling, and I hope you wrestle with questions and struggle and doubt. I don't want you to doubt, but when you do, you need to remember. You serve a God who can save you from sin, and he is with you in your doubt. I want to close with this. I live here in Oregon, and what I don't know if you've been to Oregon, but uh, in Oregon, it rains about 714 days out of the year here. It's a very, 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 very wet state, and when you live in Oregon, you have to find creative reasons to live here, and one of ours, the reason we live here, not the only one, but it's a biggie, is our tomatoes. This is a picture. I mean, Oregon tomatoes. If, if you've never had an Oregon tomato, in the summer, a vine-ripened Oregon tomato. I'm, I, I strongly uh, doubt your salvation. I'm, I'm not convinced you, you know Jesus yet. Our tomatoes, we're a weird state, man, but our tomatoes are proof of God's existence. I've never met somebody who has eaten an Oregon tomato and afterwards said, yeah, there's no God. Because you can't. I mean, these, they're just, they're just un 
believable. Okay. And in the summertime, here's what I think. Here's what I think. I'm going to make a final point here. I see a lot of people right now deconstructing their faith. I think a lot of people are like, ah, everybody's walking away from Jesus. Everybody's walking away from Jesus. And I want to suggest that not everybody who's walking, not everybody who's deconstructing or doubting is walking away from Jesus. I want to suggest that some of them are actually trying to find Jesus. Because here's what happens in the summer. When I serve these tomatoes, we'll have friends come over for dinner in the summer. And we'll, we have an urban farm. And when we set the table and, and I'll, I'll bring these tomatoes out and I'll serve them, there will always be somebody at the table who will say, oh, I don't like tomatoes. And I'll say, oh, you haven't had tomatoes. And I, I'll take the tomato and I will serve them. And I will require them to eat. And they will eat the Oregon tomato. And then they will always say something like this. This is a tomato? And I'll say, that's a tomato. And they'll say, oh my gosh, I love tomatoes. Here's the point. People don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. And they've spent their entire life thinking they're the same thing. I see a lot of young people deconstructing, not because they're walking away from Jesus, but because really, they were given a lot of religion as kids. And their hearts long for something so deeper and more real that they've equated religion with Jesus. And I want to say today that for some of you, you need to hear this. You haven't tried the tomatoes yet. You got to taste Jesus. You got to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the good news in all this thing, this whole conversation, is it really does reveal what we're hungry for. And if you are hungry for life, you find it in Jesus. I invite you, taste and see, taste and see. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.